Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is June 10, 2016, and my guest is Kevin Kelly. His latest book is The Inevitable, Understanding the 12 Technological Forces That Will Shape Our Future. Kevin, welcome back to Econ Talk. No, it's always so good to talk to you. This is a great book. I don't say that very often. Uh, it's a book I read every single word of, uh, which I all, tr- always try to do but don't always succeed at as a host. And this time I not only was able to do it uh, despite the short amount of time I had to read the book, but I savored it. Uh, it's a vivid snapshot of the present. It's beautifully written speculation about where we're heading. It's provocative and mind-blowing. It might even be true. <laughs> uh, we're we're going to try to touch on all 12 trends, but we'll see where we go. And I'm going to start with the first chapter, which is called Becoming. You argue that looking back on today in 30 years, it will feel like the way we look back at, say, 1985, that, oh, boy, it would have been great to be around then. There was so much low-hanging fruit. It was so easy to come up with new stuff. And yet there's a certain malaise, I feel, in um, – in our look at technology today, some people think, you know, it just didn't pan out. We didn't get the flying cars. It's just Twitter. It's just a bunch of social media. Uh, why are you so optimistic about the present and the potential for the future? Because I read a lot of history, and it seems to me that uh, if you look at what's really going on, we should be very optimistic about the improvements we have and that we tend to overcome many of the problems that are introduced. And by the way, this new technology will introduce a host of new problems that we haven't had before. Um, But in general, I think um, the more you look at history, the more optimistic I'm allowed to become looking into the future. But... Damn, we really kind of, this internet thing, isn't it overrated? Just so what if I can tell people what I had for lunch and what my cat's doing? I mean, where's the, where's the big payoff? Well, um, I, I think if we get to talk to about AI and things like that, I think that the impact of that is actually being underestimated at the moment. But it, just in general, I, I think um, internet and all this kind of stuff is a communications medium and we're amplifying, enhancing, leveraging, and in all ways multiplying the power of communications. And communications is the foundation of society. It's not just like another sector. This is the this is the essential thing that makes us human in many ways. And so we're 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 really tweaking the the primary core button and um that's why this is a big thing. That's why all this stuff is so important is because this is sort of the essential nature of what this civilization is. Yeah, I, but you do have to concede, I think, and I, I find your book, and I'm, a, I'm an incredible optimist in general, and your book made me feel like a pessimist because I think you're a <laughs> much bigger optimist than I am. But Yeah, I'm to, off the chart. Yeah, you are, and, but I loved it. And just to be play pessimist for a minute, when we think about artificial intelligence, for example, today, and you mentioned both these kind of things in your, in your book – is it really that exciting that our thermostat gets to know us? Is it really that exciting that my car 
beeps at me when I'm going out of my lane or can parallel park, which is great for my 16-year-old worried about his his driver's license test. But um, th- these are not transformative applications. Yeah, yeah, there's two. I mean, it, it seems at first very invisible. In fact, you know, if you, well, you might not recall, but in the 1920s or something, Sears Roebuck, uh, the mail order catalog company, was selling the home motor. And the home motor was this immense, you know, 15-pound motor that was going to sit in the center of your home and automate all the uh, appliances and whatnot in your home. And um, we have that industrial revolution thing worked because it became invisible. We, we, we don't have the big motor turning everything. We have like 50 motors in our homes. They became invisible. So to, to some extent, this stuff is working because we don't see it, because it's not something that is visible and it, it succeeds to the extent that it, it transforms while we don't see it. Um, so that's one thing. And then the second thing I would say about that is that, um, you know, we're, we're, we're sitting on this, this huge wave of the first industrial revolution, which, you know, has brought this incredible prosperity to us. All that we see around us is the fact that we no longer in the agricultural hunter gatherer era where we had to do everything with human muscle or, Animal muscle, animal power. We we invented something called synthetic artificial power, and we harnessed fossil fuels and, and carbon fuels to give us additional power that we couldn't do. And all that that we see is basically a result of this artificial power. So when we drive down uh, the road in your car, you have 250 horses yes. working for you at that moment. <laughs> just, just turn the little knob, and you've got 250 horses powering you down to do whatever you want to do. And then we distributed that power through a grid to all every home and farm in the country. And so farmers could employ that artificial power to do all kinds of things. And factories could use that artificial power. And everything that we had built around us is because of that artificial power that we made. Well, now we're going to do the same thing with artificial intelligence. And so instead of, in addition to having 250 horses, driving you down the road, you're going to have 250 mines, that you, which is which we're going to get from, from AI, from artificial intelligence. And that, we're also going to put that onto a grid and distribute that around the country so that anybody, like any farmer, could just get and purchase as much artificial power and artificial intelligence as they want to do things. And just as that artificial power was this incredibly transformative, incredibly progressive, incredibly powerful platform to, to, to give us all that we enjoy now. This artificial minds that we are going to get on top of the artificial power is going to transform us in an equal way. It's going to touch everything that we do. And I think actually it will transform us more than that first industrial revolution did. Yeah, so one of the things I loved about the book is that uh, we have a temptation to think. I have a temptation to think that you know what's transformative about the internet. Oh, I can, I can look up a line of poetry. I can't remember the author of it. It's really fantastic. Um, so Google search is just amazing for for just quick answers to things that nag at my brain or help me find ideas or whatever it is. And similarly, if you'd said to me, so what else is important? I would say, well, you know, business to business. Uh, computing is phenomenal. The opportunity to shop online and that what that does to pricing and the way we've overcome trust issues, those are all great. But you actually identified something I wouldn't have thought of, which is I want you to talk about for a minute, which is 
in the early days of the internet, people realized, hey, you know, there's going to be more stuff to, to for entertainment. Instead of having three channels or four or five, we're going to have 5,000. But no one could figure out how that content was going to be generated to fill up 5,000 channels 24-7 or 18-7 or whatever was going to be the broadcast time. But you pointed out that um, we actually have a lot more than 5,000 channels, and the people producing that content are us. Right. That was the big thing that even we at Wired missed when we were trying to imagine what, say, the web was going to be um, in its very early days. And um, that kind of uh, bottom-up, we can now call it user-generated content, we call it this peer-to-peer production, the prosumer revolution that Alvin Toffler talked about and predicted in the 80s, all that was something that seemed to be unexpected. And um, uh, so, so we have this, we have this harness of this, this power of, um, of everybody sort of making things, which um, we didn't really have before. And where we're headed is actually to keep um, extending the, the scale of that. So a lot of these sort of miraculous things, I, I like to call them miraculous in the sense that they seemed, they seemed to be magical, like Wikipedia, which cannot really work in theory. I mean, if, if the theory of how this works is just really absurd, but there it is. It keeps, it's an encyclopedia that anybody can change and write. Um, but that, that, that is come about because we have enabled with communication, this, this simple, kind of obvious, boring communication technology to allow large-scale numbers of people to collaborate in real time in ways that we couldn't before. And um, if you think about what Facebook is doing, you know, 1.5 billion people connected together doing something together at the same time, that's just the beginning. We're going to head into the next 20 or 30 years where we're going to enable every person connected with a phone, it's potentially to be collaborating, doing something together in real time. That has never before been possible on this planet. And these kinds of almost planetary scale collaborations, planetary scale cooperation, planetary scale synchronization, whatever you want, all these things are gonna be explored. That's a new power that we haven't seen before that is driving a lot of this uh, excitement. While we'll still have the mom and pop grocery store, it is not going away. While we'll still have the Solvo consultant, they are not going away. While we'll still have, you know, the 2000 employee company, they're not going away. We also have, in addition to that, all these new forms of working and doing and accomplishing things together. And that's really where the excitement is. And I think, as you point out many times, we have no idea where that ability is going to take us. It's, we haven't even tapped it at the, at the most minute, in the most minute way. And although it makes me uneasy as an economist to say something this, this, um, uh, conclusive, it, it strikes me that if the only thing we got out of the internet was Wikipedia, it might be worth it. Um, and it's just, it's just such an extraordinary thing that now we just sort of take for granted. As you point out, we'll get to this later, but as you point out, of course it was impossible. And we've talked about this on the program before. It can't yeah. happen. It won't be any good, but not only did it happen, it's great. And it's free, and it's just, it's remarkable. Uh, A lot of people worry about the impact of artificial intelligence on employment. We've talked about this. It's now becoming a recurring theme. And, of course, it's ironic. We're having this theme when unemployment in the United States is 5%. But put that to the side. I think people are legitimately worried. 
about what might be replaced by what. But I, and you talk about it at length. I just want to talk about two points you make. Uh, you talk about the fact that there are jobs that we didn't know we wanted done. I'm going to read a little excerpt here. Before we invented automobiles, air conditioning, flat-screen video displays, and animated cartoons, no one living in ancient Rome wished they could watch pictures move while riding to Athens in climate-controlled comfort. I did that recently. 100 years ago, not a single citizen of China would have told you they would rather buy a tiny, glassy slab that allowed them to talk to faraway friends before they would buy indoor plumbing. But every day, peasant farmers in China, without plumbing, purchase smartphones. Crafty AIs embedded in first-person shooter games have given millions of teenage boys the urge, the need to become professional game designers, a dream that no boy in Victorian times ever had. In a very real way, our inventions assign us our jobs. Uh, anyone add anything to that? Um, I, th- I think that, um, I think maybe elsewhere, I also I kind of maybe say it this way, is that our jobs right now, I mean, not right now, but our jobs into the future will be to invent jobs that we can automate and give to the robots. So, so, so we're, we're on a kind of a, on a path on this kind of escalator that is, we're going to keep inventing new things that we desire to be wanted to do. We'll figure out how to do them. And once we kind of figure out how to do them, we'll automate them, basically giving them to the AIs and the, and the bots. So in a certain sense, our job is to invent jobs that we can automate. And, um, I think that part of inventing jobs may be our job, human job, for a while because we have better access to our latent desires than the AIs do, although eventually even perhaps that job is is, is at least assisted by AI. Yeah, I'm going to read another quote, which takes, says what you just said, but it's so beautiful. You say, when robots and automation do our most basic work, making it relatively easy for us to be fed, clothed, and sheltered, then we are free to ask... What are humans for? Industrialization did more than just extend the average human lifespan. It led a greater percentage of the population to decide that humans were meant to be ballerinas, full-time musicians, mathematicians, athletes, fashion designers, yoga masters, fan fiction authors, and folks with one-of-a-kind titles on their business cards. With the help of our machines, we could take up these roles, but of course, over time, the machines will do these as well. Will then be empowered to dream up yet more answers to the question: What should we do? It will be every generation; it will be many generations before a robot can answer that. Uh, I want to—I love that, but I do have to raise a question, which I thought of occasionally as I read your book, which is: Your book's a little bit uh, San Francisco centric. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, people in the Bay Area, and I go out there in the summer every year and hang out with some of them, and it's—it's it's really inspiring and about all the creative stuff going on and it's 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 just it's wonderful but it is a unique collection of talent that comes from all over the world and it's not representative for better or for worse of the general population is it really true that most or all of us can do these glorious things or is it just going to be a small sector yeah i mean i i travel to china and asia as much as i can in part to try and wear off some of my San Francisco centric uh, view, which um, you know, it's, it's very hard to uh, like not be an American if you're an American. Um, yeah, good and luck so, with that. Um, yeah, exactly. But anyway, I, I, I do try, but I, I but I think yes, I I, I am I am um, tainted in that sense. But to to answer your your, your question, um, I, I I do think 
that there is lots of room for, for, for these new occupations, let's call them, these new roles, these new vocations that are not just cerebral and, and, and privileged and, um, you know, elite and, uh, uh professional. Um, I, I, I think that one of the things that, that we cherish, and in fact, one of the things that is going to be hard for these AIs to do is, is a lot of the human interaction. And so having somebody sit at, when you're sick, having another person sit with you, I mean, I, I, I know that there are going to be bots trying to do some of that, but, but I think, uh, we will prefer to have a human there and we will, in a certain sense, pay them more to do that. And so I think there are lots of interpersonal, human-centered, relational, relationship-based, uh, things that, that we, we as humans value and are, if we value them, we'll be willing to, to pay for them and therefore they'll, they'll be an occupation for people. So, uh, later in, in, in the book I talk about interaction in VR and how we're moving from an internet of, uh, information to the internet of experiences where experiences are the currency. And I think experiences are often, uh, for us anyway as humans, much, um, more, uh, elevated and enhanced when, when human, real humans are involved. And I think, um, uh, for all the, the 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 improvements in virtuality, I think there will always be a difference between that and reality and real humans. We will have teleconferencing, virtual avatars, but we will prefer, and I think therefore we will pay more to be around um, humans. And so, while VR will continue to boom, I think travel meeting someone in person will actually increase in value at the same time that we spend more time in virtual places. And so I think even for those people who are not as uh, professionally oriented, who don't even, who, who don't desire to kind of keep learning a new computer language, etc., I think that there's going to be plenty of room for for people in doing things that we as humans will find preferable than to than having a, a bot do. So so I, I think yes, I, I think this is not just San Francisco centric. I think this is really where we're going to go. So to some extent, what you're talking about there is I would describe as authenticity, right? We're yes, still going to have a demand. Yeah. We're still going to have a demand for authenticity. But I have to say, and that's been my feeling of the last five years or so thinking about these issues. But I have to say, reading your book, which opened my mind a great deal about what the next 20 years might look like, say, or 10, maybe five, uh, one of the things I learned, and you, you talk about this, is the blurring of authentic and inauthentic. So when you, uh, our Nikon Talk listener recently let me experience uh, VR, virtual reality, uh, as I prepared for this interview, I told him I was... Um, going to be doing, and I'd read your fantastic article, we'll put a link up to about uh, some of the advances in VR. And uh, so I want to thank that listener. But uh, in doing that, I found myself, um, you know, on a Venice street, tossing a stick to a, a mechanical dog and while I was talking to this guy. And um, I found myself continuing to throw the stick to the dog, even though I know he's not really getting any exercise out of it. And I have a feeling that as I hang out with avatars, I'm going to have trouble keeping a distinction between the real ones and the and the and the not so real ones. And similarly, as I start patching together media, which is another one of your themes, our ability to edit and remix and 
incredible things that are coming and music and visuals, uh, it's going to be hard to keep the truth distinct from the not so true. I I have not found that myself. And other people who've spent a lot of time in VR in the most advanced versions of it also report the same thing to me, which is that um, when they take the goggles off, when when they come back out, they're all they're, they're constantly kind of um, refreshed by the power of this version of reality. In other words, it's, it's like you kind of like you. You, 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 um, uh, we seem to be really well tuned to kind of sniff out those, those differences when we want to. Lots of times, like when you go to a movie, you're kind of, you're suspending that temporarily, um, and while you're in it, you're enjoying that full sense of immersion, but if you were kind of questioned, or if if it mattered, you would say, you know, it's obviously, it's just, it's just, I mean, I can tell this is a movie. But, so we, we kind of willingly give up some of that. But I think that if, if it becomes critical that we know, um, it, it's actually not difficult to tell. And I think for a very, very long time, um, we'll be able to, to tell the difference when it, when we want to. But I think the, the thing is, and this is the, maybe the discovery is that often we don't want yeah, to. Yeah, that's, <laughs> It's bad. It's easier. It's more vivid right. in certain well, tragic well, exactly vivid right. ways. It, yeah, right. You're you're entering into a novel and you're forgetting everything else, all the other obligations, and you're just you're just caught up in the story, and you don't want to. You know, you're kind of escaping. We talked yeah, about that. Sure. And so, so, so in that sense, um, while you're in there, yeah. But I think that 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 um, in the same way that you know people were very very worried about romance novels when they first came out, there was a whole slew of people just scolding. Young kids hiding up in the room reading all day long. Sure. <laughs> so, so I, I think the, our fear of that is still there. But um, uh, and, and yes, and the young are often obsessed by these things and seem to retreat into that. But that's just a phase. And I think uh, uh, I'm, I'm I'm not as worried about that um, issue. Although, because um, I think there's lots of things to worry, but that's the one I'm not really worried too much about. Uh, you described the internet as the world's greatest copy machine. Uh, what do you yeah. mean by that? Well, it, 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 there's, a, there's something in the physics of how messages are transmitted across it that where everything is being copied constantly and uh, and redistributed in a kind of a super liquid way, and uh, just just in the physics of of how information is, works in, 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 in computers, that they have to, things are copied. So anything that can be copied, like a you know movie, song, a book that if it touches the internet, it will be copied and indiscriminately and promiscuously, promiscuously and then you know sent across uh, the entire range of the internet forever. And um, so, so if if um, you know if you don't want something to be copied, don't don't touch it on the internet. But if it is touching, it's going to be copied forever. And so there's, I would say, a bias in this technology to copy things. And um, for many years, some of the big businesses like music have really tried to work against that. They've tried to institute copy protection. Uh, uh, copy uh, digital rights management um, laws to pro, to outlaw copying. They've sued their most avid customers who are copying, and um, 
that has never worked because there's a bias in the technology that facilitates this easy copying. And only now, after three decades, have they sort of started to, to, to finally accept the fact that you cannot stop it from copying. You have to kind of work with the copying. And, um, uh, you know, they would have, the music industry would have been way ahead in their own interests if they had kind of accepted that 30 years ago and try to work with it. And this is sort of my message about the internal biases of these technologies that are founded on in the very physics and the very dynamics of how they work. And I think the same thing's happening today with tracking. I think the Internet's the world's largest tracking machine, that anything that can be tracked will be tracked and will be tracked more. And therefore, when we deal with things like privacy, we have to deal with the fact that I don't think we can be able to stop or diminish the tracking of the Internet in the same way the music companies couldn't stop the copying. We actually have to work with the tracking in some way. You say at one point, uh, when copies are free, you need to sell things that can't be copied. And I, right. you know, just 10 years ago, people said we're going to be the death of this Napster and other forms of, of copying, which haven't stopped despite Napster's death. I think Napster's bounced back a little bit, but it doesn't matter. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That, that there's not going to be any more music. There's not going to be any more. Just going to be a bunch of amateurs, you know, banging away on their guitars. It's going to be lousy because you can't make money at it. Well, they figured out ways to make money, and uh, you know, my favorite example is Hamilton, the the show which I recently saw, which you can listen to all the songs, I think, for free anytime you want, in all kinds of different ways. You can watch, the, read the lyrics, uh, and they're making so much money on the show itself that they lose $60 million to scalpers and StubHub and resellers every uh, every year, which is mind-blowing. Yeah. <laughs> They're making yeah. so much money even with that leakage or right. their decision exactly. to let it leak, whatever you want to call it. Right, right. And it, I always think of it as a taxation for success. That's Tim um, O'Reilly's uh, formula of, um, of piracy. Piracy is a taxation for success. If, 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 if your book, whatever, is, is so successful that they're pirating it, that's just a little tax for success. Most people, most authors, most musicians are dealing with obscurity. Yeah, correct. <laughs> they would like be thrilled. <laughs> They'd be thrilled to have enough that they're going to be pirated. Oh, this someone so, would put my book up as a PDF. I, I... <laughs> exactly right. Exactly. Uh, um, so, so, so that, yeah, so the idea of what I call generative, meaning that when copies are free, then you have to shift to something that can't be copied very well. So there's a bunch of things like immediacy or personalization or trust, which cannot be copied or stored. And that's kind of what you're selling. So it's possible, like you said, if you wait or look hard enough, you can get a copy of the Hamilton musical. But if you want to be present, and which can't be copied very well, then you're going to pay $1,000 for a ticket. If... Um, you want to have the uh, Mozart symphony, you can be able to find it free online, but if you want to have it tailored to the acoustics of your living room, you'll pay for that, and you're, in a sense, not paying for the music, you're paying for the personalization. And so that's sort of the message of that one. For people interested in business, those those genitives, as you call it, the things that you can uh, add to uh, the, the easily copied item, that might be worth the price of the book alone, and you're not getting it here on the free Econ Talk podcast. You got to buy the book. So I just want to to put in that. <laughs> no, plug. no, actually, it's free on my website. <laughs> <laughs> Shh, don't tell them. Okay, so um, you say at one point that uh, we used to be uh, the people of the book, 
uh, human beings, and now we are people of the screen, uh, which of course it does not mean the death of reading, as you point out. I always like to point that out as well. Uh, more people are reading now, probably ever in, in human history, by a order of magnitude more. Uh, they're just not reading full-blown novels and history books. They're reading all kinds of other things, some of which are wonderful and some less so. But um, at one point, you make an observation about how we differ when we look to solve problems. Uh, people, the book versus people, the screen, law versus technology. Talk about that. Yeah, so so the, the general thesis of the, of, of the people of the book is that the book, it's of this kind of fixed, uh, finished, um, uh, precise, um, immutable, um, monumental in some cases, uh, text, uh, is the foundation of Western civilization and to some extent even Eastern civilization. So, so, so we have the founding documents in our country of, you know, of the Constitution, of the Bible, of law books, um, and also we have these authors which are in same root as authority. So a lot of our authority comes back to the, the authors. And so that is, that kind of orientation, having cheap access, access to these books and public libraries and literacy and reading and writing and all has produced this incredible, I don't know, 500 year, um, explosion of, of civilization. I mean, I mean, everything around us has sort of in many ways been derived on the success of that. But that now we are moving away from those, um, those monumental, um, enduring mode of, of books and we're people to screen and we screen, we not reading, quite reading, not watching, it's something in between. We screen the screens and the screens are everywhere. And on the screen, things are not fixed. You have the Wikipedia, which is a process is constantly being changed. We have, uh, the flows of, uh, of, of, data that come across, we have the streams of uh, movies and we're streaming music and we're streaming our Instagram accounts and the Facebook wall, so it's all flowing past us in a never-ending um, ocean of, of stuff that's been very liquid. Um, uh, there's different versions, we're constantly being updated, um, things don't aren't there for very long, they just pass through, so all this makes it very hard to have authorities and authors, and um, we have to kind of, uh, instead of going to an authority for truth, we actually kind of have to assemble it ourselves from many different sources. And the interesting thing is that for every source out there, for every expert, there's a counter-expert, and for every fact we can kind of dig around, there's an anti-fact, and for every um, thing that we think... Um, uh, it's true someone else uh, is denying it or, or suggesting an alternative, and this makes it very, very difficult to know what is true, and so we um, need a new skill, a whole new skill set for ascertaining and for constructing our truth in that, in that sense. And there are other implementations or, excuse me, um, other consequences of this shift to these pixels which are just flowing across and this very liquid um, uh, sensibility that, that this life on the screen is giving us. Not that books go away because books are kind of a, a long narrative or a long, uh, long argument. Those can still be made. But 
there'll be versions. They'll have multiple versions. They'll be unfinished. They 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 um, will be amendable. They'll be personalizable. Whatever. And so these uh, this era that we're into is is um, uh, going to be marked by I think a culture that revolves around this liquidity. Yeah, I'm reminded um, of a Robert Klein comedy routine. I, I don't know if. If you know him, but uh, I remember my, Robert. My I'm old enough to remember. Robert I know you Clark. are. I know you are. Just to, I don't want to test your cultural knowledge, but he used to have a comedy routine. Uh, it was a parody of a late night uh, advertising infomercial where they would say, um, you know, there'd be these records you could buy over the TV that they'd advertise. You could call a number and order a set of music or whatever. And this was this was the parody of it. It was. You can get every record ever recorded. A truck pulls up to your house. And it was supposed to be funny that, you know, Polish, Polish music, bagpipes, classical opera, everything. And um, we actually live in that world. And I'm going to read, if I may, another really glorious passage. You say, you're talking about the knowledge that we have access to. You say, this is a very big library. From the days of Sumerian clay tablets until now, humans have published at least 310 million books, 1.4 billion articles and essays, 180 million songs, 3.5 trillion images, 330,000 movies, a billion hours of video, TV shows and short films, and 60 trillion public web pages. All this material is currently contained in all the libraries and archives of the world. When fully digitized, the whole lot could be compressed at current technological rates onto 50 petabyte hard disks. Ten years ago, you needed a building about the size of a small town library to house 50 petabytes. Today, the Universal Library would fill your bedroom with tomorrow's technology. It will fit onto your phone. When that happens, the library of all libraries will ride in your purse or wallet if it doesn't plug directly into your brain with thin white cords. Some people alive today are surely hoping that they die before such things happen, and others, mostly the young, want to know what's taking so long. And that passage gives me goosebumps. Uh, I love that. It's, it, moves, it, it, it literally moves me. Um, uh-huh. And what I want to know is, what's stopping that besides oh, two questions? The technology is might be slowing down. Does that worry you? And secondly, uh, what regulatory barriers, intellectual property barriers, are keeping me from carrying the sum of human creativity and knowledge in my pocket? Um, There are some regulatory hurdles, but actually I think the only thing stopping it is that um, there's another chapter in the book called Accessing. I I think that, that there's no reason for you to carry it around when you can have access to it. Um, it's true. It's it's. Um, uh, I don't. I mean, I'm. Not, I don't want to carry it around. But I already I, have access to it to, to almost all of it, as you say, through my right, pocket right, right, right now, through my phone. But what's going to keep right, right. the size of it from being what it could be? Well, because most people don't. It's sort of like, yeah, you you can put it all into one thing and carry it around, but um, you don't need to do that. Um, no, but I can't get at all of it now because of intellectual property. It's not just that. Uh, I don't want to physically carry it around. I can't stream it either. I can't right, get all right. of it. Well, yeah, okay. So to, to, to your point, basically, um, all the books have not been digitized yet. And that's that's maybe more what you're talking about. Yeah. There's a whole set of orphan books. They call them orphan yeah. books in the sense that 
they're um, out of copyright, but the who, well, it's, it's unclear whether they're in copyright or not. And so um, uh, they, they being the the powers that have been scanning the books, including libraries, are reluctant to scan them because their ownership is uncertain, and so therefore they haven't been scanned, and um, that's a significant portion of the library. And then, then there's a, a bunch of things like uh, journals, scientific journals, where um, they want people to pay to access them, so they're not they're not on this. They're in the library, but they're not accessible to you. Yeah. So what we'll take, um, I think, you know, it may be another many years before people understand slowly that um, they get more value out of things when they're shared than when they're hoarded. And this has been a kind of a slow dawning for a lot of publishers. Um, and I think there also might be some um, legislation where people, uh, people, where, 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 Agencies, countries decide that the public good demands a certain level of easy access to, say, scientific uh, literature, um, and that that's just kind of like a that's that's a civilized duty in a certain sense. Um, so, so that we may take that. But you're right that there is a lot of that universal library that's not really accessible right now, um, and that. I think uh, fair use, which is often a um, uh, often used, I think, uh, was for a while kind of cramped. So we had these famous things, the Mickey Mouse Extension Act, yeah. which is that Mickey Mouse um, copyright keeps being extended, uh, so Disney doesn't have to put it into public domain, um, even though Walt Disney died a hundred years ago, whatever it was. Long ago, and he and even no though, longer be. And even though he took expensive. his first Mickey Mouse cartoon was an adaptation of a Buster Keaton movie. Well, not only that, but most all the Disney greats are all ripoffs of public domain uh, fairy tales. Yeah, exactly. In fact, for for a long time, until Disney bought Pixar, they had complete they had complete flops doing their own stories and their entire wealth and, and greatness came from public domain stories that they redid with, you know, in, in public domain work. And um, that was just ironic that they were, you know, they were ex- trying to extend the one thing, Mickey Mouse, that they'd come up with. And so um, I, I, I think that, um, that you know, cop- changing copyright law would certainly be part of it. Yeah, we'll see. It's um, some vested interests there that make it... Um yeah, uh, a little bit. I mean, I mean, we can have a whole conversation about that, but it's it's yeah, not um, this the one. idea that uh, I believe actually the natural home for inventions is actually in the public domain, and that we give them temporary monopolies to kind of incent the, the the creators, and that those should be short, very very short, and it should then return to its natural home of the public domain. So that's a little bit different idea that the natural domain of an idea is in the inventors first, and that. Then we kind of, then we kind of open it up. I think that the natural domain of all the inventions and everything we create is in the public domain first, because there is almost no new ideas. Because um, that's where most ideas are coming from, and so I think they naturally reside in the public domain, and we only give them a temporary uh, individual monopoly that has to be very, very short. 
I'm afraid you're going to have to pay a royalty to the author of Ecclesiastes who said there's nothing new under the sun. You've obviously just stolen that line. (laughs) So anyway, uh, while I was reading your book and thinking about these uh, ideas about the extraordinary access we're going to have, I I couldn't help but think about what I sometimes think about as a show when I watch my kids and how differently their spare time is from my spare time when I was uh, a teenager. And... I worry about contemplation. I worry about um, introspection. We're so bombarded, and we choose to be bombarded by stuff. Mm. And it's so much fun. (laughs) It's so interesting, and it's so much, as you point out, the extraordinariness of human capabilities is on display in a way we didn't have access to before. And so I'm thinking that, and of course, later on in the book, you not only say that we are losing the art of contemplation, but it's a good thing. So uh, talk about that. Well, there is, there is a certain sense of kind of interior reading space that literature and words and things um, could bring us to. And I think we get less of that when we're even reading on a uh, – well, maybe Kindle some, some extent. But when, when we're reading online where there's lots and tons and tons of, the, of distractions – but the, 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 the thing is that we often kind of dismiss those distractions as just distractions. But I think, to some extent, that flitting around, that kind of surfing the web, that kind of quick skipping from one idea to another, um, it entails a certain amount of engagement. And I think um, it's a, in, way, in some ways it's a proper response to this flood of information that's around us. And that you kind of have to, um, in some ways, you have to be paddling faster then the river is going in order to steer. And I think um, uh, what I've observed in my own reaction to this kind of stuff is that I feel that, that in, uh, in, when I encounter something new, I, have a, I now uh, have a tendency to kind of do something to it. I have a, have a tendency to kind of engage it, to look it up, to respond to it, to... Um, form an opinion quickly, to um, search for things, to in some ways react and um, discuss it, uh, conjure with it. And I think um, that's a very different thing than kind of going deep and contemplating and sitting with something. But this response is a valid, uh, I think it's a valid and proper response to the environment. Now, I, I, I think there are there is a loss and there, and there is a need for contemplation. And my, my hunch is, is that this is part of techno literacy. This is part of what we have to learn how to do. And, and we may need technological assistance to actually help us do that. And I think a lot of people's attempts to try and limit where they can go while they're reading or other things are, are just the beginning of that. So I think that we, um, I promote something called techno literacy, which is this idea that just as it took you and I four years or so to learn how to read with very deliberate practice, we just didn't learn it by osmosis. We, we had to be taught it and we had to spend time learning it. I think there's going to be certain skills um, in, the, in the future that we actually have to learn rather than just serve hang out online and assume that, that people will, will, will get those things, we may have to be taught them. They may be things like, well, here's how we do contemplation in this kind of environment. Here are the technological things that we need to assist us 
to go deep when it's necessary to go deep. So I think while there is a diminishment of that kind of contemplation, I don't think it's lost forever. And I do think that the alternative that we have now is a proper response to this incredibly fluid environment that we're in. Uh, you know, for me personally, I think my attention span has gone down uh, as yep. the uh, with the internet. But I actually feel, and I'm probably fooling myself, but maybe not. I feel like my brain goes faster. I feel yep. like I see connections between things right. that I didn't see before because exactly. I've got more stuff in there from right. exposure to all these ideas and 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 thoughts. And um, it's as you point out, we all know our brain works when we're not thinking about things. So there, there's others. There is some definitely compensations. Um, you mentioned twice, I think, in the book in passing, uh, a shocking thing. They just sort of, I think, it gets a sentence or two each time. You know, maybe you know, there'll be some power outages, and well, you know, some enormous part of the internet will go dark. And yeah. Yeah. Um, do you worry about losing the library of libraries as things go digital? Uh, talked about this recently with uh, Abby Smith Rumsey. Is what's going to protect us? Is it just the distribution? Do you worry about this? You didn't seem too much, but you're an optimist, so maybe you should be. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I'm one of the co-founders of the Well Now Foundation, where one of the very first projects that we looked at was the perseverance of digital information because it is um, so bound to these platforms which go obsolete very, very fast. I mean, who, who, who even, if you get a CD-ROM today, what would you even do with it? Um, it seems yeah, the, CD go up. the CD-ROM may last forever, but the yeah. readers don't. Okay, so this was an issue that we were trying to say, how do you, how do you, how do, you do a digital bits over the long term? And um, it is it's kind of a horrifying scenario uh, based on what we've done so far. And... Um, I, I think um, that long-term transmission of digital information is a challenge, and there is a a, a worry in in that. Um, you uh, there are a couple of people who are doing interesting things as a alternative. There is one person, basically. I, I like to say it's one person. There's one person backing up the internet. I mean, this is a guy, Brewster Kale. He is backing up the internet. He he personally started doing it, and, and I worked in his little office where where he had these tape machines, and now it's a big, you know, he has sort of like a whole institute, a whole nonprofit doing it. But it's him, you know. Basically, he's still financing it, and um, the same Does he have guy. A bodyguard. Is, we got to protect this guy. Yeah. Who's monitoring his health? <laughs> exactly. This same guy is actually has a warehouse in Richmond, um, California, and in this huge, huge unmarked warehouse off the freeway is rows and rows of containers, and inside the containers are stacks and stacks of books on pallets wrapped in plastic. And what these are is are these are the original copies of the books that that are scanned digitally into the internet archive. So there is a there is like, and you can find if you want to find the the book that Tom Sawyer's, the, you know, his his uh, his book. There'll there'll be a copy of it, um, you know, in container five, pallet three, this high up. And so um, we do have the means to do, you know, a, a backup, the Library of Congress kind of a thing. And so um, I'm not so worried about losing it. 
um, I am, we're more likely to lose track of something than to lose it. But I think, um, uh, I, I think it's a, I, I think it's the access to it is something that we have to work a little harder to make sure that we always have up. So I, I'm, I'm, I should say, I'm concerned, but not worried. Uh, in the filtering chapter, you talk about experiences. Uh, why are they? What are they? And why are they increasingly important? Um, it's, it's, I mean, you know, we 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 just inherently full-bodied. Um, we use our full bodies for things. We don't realize how much we depend on these other senses to both learn and to enjoy. And that's one of the one of the lessons that virtual reality has been teaching us very quickly is that, you know, more than half of that power that we get from being places is actually not in our eyes. It's it's all these other bodily presences, feeling, touch, smell, um, hearing, and so. Um, uh, what we're doing with our technology is, is actually right now we have a kind of a very limited interaction with them. I mean, you know, we, we, we type with our fingers and we read and, um, uh, we're going to kind of explode that and put much more of our gestures and our whole body and our, and our tactile sense as we interact with things because that's what we like to do in the real world. That's how we evolved. And that's, that's a huge um, step for us. And so I think um, uh, we'll come to see the idea of kind of, you know, interacting or, or being on your computer and people sitting and typing is, is, is being very archaic and will be very dated when we're going to be conversing with our computers and using our hand gestures and our body and our body language. And that's much like you know, we would talk to each other and, um, uh, that's very, li- that's very liberating and also very exciting. And there's lots of huge opportunities going back to the very first thing we say about, um, that we're at the beginning because we're just at the beginning of, of being able to, to do that and knowing how to do that. What is rewindability? Why is it important and how might it change how we live? Yeah, so the, 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 the short version is, is that, um, for, for a very long in our own evolutionary history and even in the very beginning of, of civilization, it was an oral culture. Um, somebody said something and it was gone and you developed, people developed a very good memory for recalling that and they could do re- recite, they could recite long ballads and poems. Um, and they had other, you know, the memory palace and other kind of devices to try and recall what had been said. Um, well, print, the Gutenberg revolution, easy, well, writing was the beginning, but then having, you know, ubiquitous copies made it, made it kind of easier to, um, offload that. And so we could write something down and then you could reread it. Well, um, now we've sort of extended that, that rereading, that rewindability, going back and scrolling back to, um, of course, things that are uh, voices we can do record, but now with video, um, almost everything's being videoed, and that allows us to kind of scroll back to, to rewind and see it again. And seeing things again, which was sort of 
things that we, something we did in the Gutenberg world of text allows you to study things and they transform it. If you've ever seen a GIF or GIF loop where some small gesture is just circled and repeated and preeded, it kind of, the more you see it, it kind of starts to elevate into something big. It's, this is amazing that it has a, that that loop creates um, an intense focus that moves it up uh, uh, into something else. And so that, that, that ability, yeah, that ability to kind of go back to whatever politicians have said and hear what they <laughs> had said earlier, that ability to take that 30-second commercial and study it and then or see it again and again and whenever you want, that ability to take a very complicated plot line from a long, ongoing series and dissect it, all these this ability to kind of retrieve things not just the text, but but this other visuality, not just literacy, this 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 other world of of the images and experiences, and we'll be able to rewind our virtual reality experiences and replay them in slow mo, so to speak. I think that is this huge. Is, this is this kind of huge benefit that we had with text. Now we're going to have with the rest of what we create. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, I- I've discovered reading your book that you were a consultant with with a group of people on Minority Report, one of my favorite movies of all time. And we could spend at least an hour talking about that. We will not. But one of the things, of course, that visually makes that movie just so interesting is the way that uh, Tom Cruise physically interacts with his computer, the way that screens spread out through the world um, are customized for you, the the traveler, and I always thought that was so clever and probably true, and now I understand why, because a bunch of smart people working on these things were, were, yeah, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. were advising Steven Spielberg. Um, right. But your theme at this, at that, in this chapter is interacting, and um, I think most people think that virtual reality is just a thing for, that's going to make games better, but having have that small sample of the experience myself, and you've been in other more, even more immersive uh, experiences than I have, it's going to change everything uh talk about that yeah um i i i i think i i you know i spent five months trying all the the, the current vr experiments and commercial models and content and hardware and i came away with this idea that um as i said before the 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 the, the you you there's several things. One is the VR works on your brain or your body at a different level than your conscious intellect. Um, in the same way that, that there's something deep in our, in our perception system that allows us to uh, see something moving across the screen when actually nothing is moving. We're just looking at a bunch of still images in sequence. Um, that happens very deep. And the same kind of there's a, a sense of presence of another person being present, of this world being real. And that's all happening um, deep in our brains. And we're doing the work. We are, our brains are kind of doing that, 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 that magic, so to speak. Um, and so there's a kind of a real symbiosis between the human brain and the technology together producing these experiences. And there are experiences that we truly, really feel. And that's the thing that, that surprised me. It's not that we know things, which is the Internet, right? It's this place that we know stuff. Now we're going to feel things. So it's a way of doing kind of artificial feeling, maybe I want to say, or something, virtual feelings. 
And that, and, and the fact that the, the, these, uh, these are working kind of at a lower level, lower meaning a more primitive and uh, a more basic level than just intellect. That is, the, the, I think, extremely powerful um, because we're so human. And so I think um, a lot of the social stuff that we're doing online will move to these kind of VR because we'll have a level of experience in that, in that social interaction that will be very, very powerful. And, um, uh, and, and then the, the virtualness is, again, be applied to, you know, education, training, work, um, the military, uh, sports. It's really, really big. And I think in conjunction with the AI, because AI is going to be an essential part of this to be able to actually track people and understand what they're doing. Uh, in, in conjunction with uh, cheap AI, I think this is this is the the platform that follows smartphones. This is where we're going to go after our smartphones, or even with our smartphones. And so, um, I think it's, it's, this is I, I find it hard to think of something that isn't going to be affected by being able to, you know, have this version of reality that's. Uh, easily accessible, and I think it's going to be very, very powerful. There'll be a lot of social problems caused by it, but the overall benefits will be huge. Yeah, I, I just, I think it's so hard for us to adapt to it as creators, and I think we obviously we will. But I'm struck by how poorly we've adapted to the internet. Still, you know, we have still have a temptation to write books and put them on the internet, but with pictures. <laughs> uh, and we yeah. haven't really captured that. But I, when I think about, say, uh, I don't know, uh, my, trying to understand what my daughter understands about art. My daughter understands a lot of things about yeah. art that I don't. So she can write me an essay. Uh, she yeah. can uh, write a book about it that has illustrations of art. Yeah. She can put a web page up about art. But the idea that I could go to the Louvre or the National Gallery and hang out with her there and look at the paintings and turn my head and see and get closer and move back. That's just mind-boggling. It's just uh, that mind-boggling is not the right word for it. There isn't. We don't have a word for it. It's gonna. It's gonna change everything. It's it's awesome. It's, it's, that's the word <laughs> Silicon Valley has for it. It's yeah. awesome. Um, your book ends with a gorgeous, powerful vision of how much we're going to know and how we're all going to be connected and how that's going to transform our lives. And I couldn't help but get the feeling as I read it that it's a religious vision. It's a vision, it's a human religious vision of an all-knowing, all-watching thing. It's not God, but it's this, you call it the holos, this web of our connections, the knowledge that we have. And there's a certain messianic feeling. Uh, you know, some people call this the rapture of the nerds, that's a different version of the singularity that some people have. But do you ever think about the, you ever contemplate this, um, this idea that, that we humans are creating something larger than ourselves that sounds something like God? Yeah, well, I mean, I have a pretty big, um, I, I mean, my God's pretty big, so my, my, my God's much bigger than, than the Holos. So I'm, I don't think there's, for me, in my mind, not much confusion, but I do Good for you. agree that there is sort of a, a spiritual element of this when we, we collectively humans connect all seven billion of us, nine billion of us in the future together with our nine billion phones, with our nine trillion, you know, machines and the nine gazillion 
other Internet of Things together, and we make this very large thing, and I don't know, I call it hollows, but it's not a machine, it's not a superorganism, it's something large, and there was going to be, um, it, it'll behave, there'll, there'll be emergent things out of that, that that will be very difficult for us to access. And so there is a sense in which we, um, in which that might be spiritual in a sense that it's bigger than us, much, much bigger than us. I don't think it's as big as God, but I think it's in that direction of, of, of kind of like, uh, yeah, we're, we're, it's spiritual in a sense that it's touching something beyond that we, beyond our normal day to day lives. It's, it's outside of that level. And it may be mysterious and some people may turn it into a religion. That's also possible too. Um, it's, in fact, it's probably very likely. Um, but I, but I do think that, um, this is the really big news that we're going that is actually kind of unseen right now, which is that we are connecting ourselves together in a way that has never been before possible that will allow all kinds of amazing and difficult and horrible things to happen. Uh, and most of it, uh, many of it will be things that we'll, we'll never probably really understand. Like, you know, there was a couple of years ago, the flash crash, which is sort of all around the world, all the, stock markets together on the globe kind of made a dip and then came back. And nobody knows why they did that. It was this unit, it was this kind of a globally syncopated beat, a pulse. And that's the kind of thing that I think we're going to see more and more of because we're going to be operating. We, we're going to, we've made something that will operate at a different level. And that's scary to some. It's out of control. We don't know what's happening. And it could be, you know, religious to others. The Ultimate Emergent Order. Yeah. My guest today has been Kevin Kelly. His book is The Inevitable. Kevin, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. It's really, really great, Russ. I always enjoy conversations. Thanks for having me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.